Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we do come before you because of our Lord Jesus Christ and his great salvation. For the Holy Spirit who applied it to our lives by giving us new birth, giving us the faith to believe, putting salvation to our account. So Father, we do ask now as we come to your scripture that you would open our hearts that they might be ready for the seed of the word to be implanted within us. Open our minds, let them be transformed through your word that we might live lives that reflect the Lord Jesus Christ in all that we do for your glory we pray. Amen. Last week, uh, Pastor Jake started this psalm series and he and I will try to do all this, the psalm series from time to time in between sermon series. This one is just going to be about five weeks, but he opened with Psalm 1, which was very, very appropriate. Uh, it's a very foundational song. He called it a gateway to the psalms, which it is. Many will put Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 together because they both represent a foundational aspect of all the psalms that will follow. Psalm 1 stresses the law of God and how we are to meditate upon it and delight in it. Psalm 2 stresses the importance of Christ's ultimate triumph, the triumph of the Messiah. And so everything after is going to be songs speaking about the righteous one, in this case the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the work that will be done for us through Him. This particular psalm, Psalm 3, is an individual lament. But as you'll see when we go through it, it's much more than just an individual lament. It has other aspects to it. Commentators will call this a mourning psalm because of verse 5 where it says, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. So this is a psalm that people would pray in the morning, reminding them, first thing in the morning, that regardless of what has happened or what will happen, that God sustains us. He neither sleeps nor slumbers so that we can. Psalm 4, which will follow this particular psalm, is called an evening psalm because of verse 8 in that particular psalm. In peace I will lay down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, Make me to dwell in safety. So the last words of the day, thanking God for, again, sustaining them. So whether it's a morning psalm or an individual lament, we want to look at this psalm in the context that it is given. This psalm has many other firsts, though it's not the first psalm that we receive. It's the first to give an introductory title In your Bibles, it probably has either a heading or in some Bibles it might have even zero. In the Hebrew Bible, these titles are part of Scripture. And I do want to call that out. This particular psalm says, A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. Another first for Psalm 3 is that it actually uses the word psalm. It's the first time it's used. The Hebrew word is mizmor. It just means a poem that is set to music. 
And that becomes important for us when we look to interpret this and see what David is trying to say to us. This is also the first time that David is shown to be the author of the psalm. It is the first psalm that has a historical setting, what I mentioned earlier, an introductory title. So the question is that introductory title, is that part of inspired scripture? Well, the short answer is yes, it is. Our earliest manuscripts of the Hebrew Bible has it as verse 1 in all cases where it's used. Our English versions of the Bibles that are translated much later just simply put it as a heading. But here's the other thing that talks about it being the inspired word. Jesus actually quotes in Matthew 22, 43-44, part of a title. Psalm 110 says a psalm of David, and that's the only time he's mentioned. But Jesus says this, the Lord said of David, David said of the Lord in the Spirit, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies at your feet. So if Jesus quotes a heading, we should see it as inspired Scripture. Now why am I going to all this length? Because it's extremely important to interpret this within the context that it's meant to be. This is about when Absalom came after David and he had to flee Jerusalem and all the events that transpire along with that. This is really the context of David's life as king in Israel. All of it coming to the head. This psalm divides into four parts. In couplets, if you will. You can see it before you. One and two, three and four, five and six. Seven and eight, four couplets, each that tell a story, a verse of the song, if you will. And we'll look at these, and I've chosen to alliterate this with C's. The first being David's complaint. The second, David's uh, confidence. The third, David's calm. And lastly, David's cry. So his complaint his confidence, his calm, and his cry. These will be principles for us to gather in and take that we might live them out. But I do want to add two bookends to this. The context, which is extremely important for it, and then as a conclusion, what this means in light of Christ. How do we see this psalm for us today? Well, the context here is the story of Absalom's rebellion. But it really starts with the life of David. David had it all. He was anointed the king of Israel while Saul was still king. Saul was a king that the people wanted. It wasn't God's choice. It was their choice. God would say to Samuel, you need to go see Jesse and his sons. There is one of his sons that is a man after my own heart. And so he is anointed to become king of Israel. And he does, by 2 Samuel, become king of Israel. He was powerful. He was wealthy. He was rich. He had wives and kids. He was flourishing. He had it all. And yet by the look of this psalm, he's lamenting. One of the lessons that come to us right away is that none of us, none of us 
are unsusceptible to actions that cause us to lament. It can happen to any of us. Our riches can't keep it from happening. Our status, our power, our position, it doesn't really matter. It affects all of us. That doesn't matter. What does matter is God. That's what matters. All of this is rooted by a sin that David committed. That's what brought on this lament. That's what brought on this rebellion. All of it is laid at David's feet. That doesn't mean when trials and tribulations come our way that it's a sin issue. But in this case, it is. 2 Samuel 11 tells us of this story. That chapter begins when the springtime comes, all the kings would go out and fight the battles. On this particular occasion, David stays home. David is idle. It says he's walking around on his rooftop. He's got time on his hands. This should be a warning to us, brothers and sisters. The Scripture tells us for six days we should work and on the seventh rest come and worship as we're doing here. Idleness isn't bad in and of itself, but it can become a problem, particularly when you're not paying attention. And David was not. He was up looking around at Jerusalem and all of his kingdom. He takes a glance in one direction and there is a very beautiful woman. She's bathing. Somehow, some way from the perspective that he has, he sees her in her fullness, if you will. I remember teaching our boys about <laughs> this. You know, you, you have to caution yourself sometimes. Is, is the narrative here age appropriate? And so you do whatever you can to do this. And I remember my older son, Jake, when we had covered this particular topic, he gave Bathsheba a nickname. He said Bathsheba Fox because she got David's attention. The, the text says that she was very beautiful. Not just a little, a lot. And because of his idleness, his mind wanders. We need to understand when the idleness is present, sin is usually crouched at the door. And so David gives in to the desire of his heart. And he calls for Bathsheba. And they bring her to him. You know the rest of the story. He commits adultery. Bathsheba becomes pregnant. She tells him. So David, instead of repenting right then, tries to cover it all up. How often do we do that? Instead of taking sins and bringing them before the Lord, we want to cover them up, sweep them under the carpet. We do that. David made that mistake. We make that mistake. Hopefully this song will teach us how not to do that. He finds out that Bathsheba is married to Uriah the Hittite, one of his mighty men. Someone who had been part of David's legion, if you will, of heroes, so to speak. He figures, I'll try to make this right. He invites, he sends a letter to Joab, send Uriah the Hittite back, and he sends Uriah the Hittite back, and David has a meal with him, and then 
expects him to go home to Bathsheba, who hasn't seen in months, thinking, okay, this will cover up the pregnancy and everything, and I'll just wash my hands of it. But Uriah doesn't go into the home. He stays at the palace door. David tries again on a subsequent night. Gives him some wine. A little too much to drink, but Uriah still didn't go back. So David sentences Uriah to death, if you will. Actually gives the letter to Uriah to take to his general, Joab, in the battle. And you know the story. They all pull back. Uriah is killed. So not only does David commit adultery, but he commits murder. Enter stage left, Nathan the prophet. He tells a story of a rich man that has a lamb. Or a poor man that has a lamb and a rich man that has many. You, you know that story. David becomes so upset at where the story goes. says, that man needs to be put to death. Nathan says, you are that man. And it's in that dialogue that Nathan the prophet tells David what the consequences of his sin are. David's sin is forgiven in 2 Samuel chapter 2. It says at the latter part, in verse 13, David says, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan says, the Lord also has put away your sins. You shall not die. But, even though there's forgiveness of sin, there's consequences. And consequences aren't always removed. What is the consequence for David? Verse 10, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own household. Out of your own household. That's the context of this psalm. Now, Absalom is the other character in this psalm that is referred to, not by name in the psalm, but in the title. Absalom's no saint. He's the third son of David. He was born to Makkah, the daughter of Talmai, the king of Geshur in a kind of an arrangement to keep peace with this particular part of the land. Absalom was handsome, charismatic. He was loved by his father, probably David's favorite son. He had everything going for him as well. But he did not have self-control. When you begin to read through the rest of 2 Samuel, this whole narrative from chapter 11 of 2 Samuel through chapter 19 covers the whole story. I'm just scratching at the surface. Absalom had a sister named Tamar. Biological sister. The firstborn son of David was Amnon. Amnon was in a position to assume the throne. Firstborn. Amnon got a look at Absalom's sister the way David did Bathsheba. He wanted his own stepsister or half-sister. 
He asks David, he plays sick, he asks David to come. David comes. So what can I do for you, son? He says, have Tamar come and make me cakes, make me food, make me feel better. Be my nurse. But he rapes her. Absalom loses it and murders his own brother. See how one sin can enter into a family? It grows like leaven. It spreads. You you don't have regular short accounts here. Repenting of sin, trying to get it to God and get forgiven, taking care of it, reconciling things. But sin does have consequences. And in this case, it was a major one. So we have two characters ladled with sin. So David, in the opening of this psalm, says this, O Lord, how many are my foes! Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Your Bibles probably have Lord capitalized there. Capital L-O-R-D. That is done on purpose. That is God's covenant-keeping name. That is Yahweh. He's not going to Lord, Adonai. He's not going to Elohim, God, the Creator. He's going to the covenant-keeping, the promise-making God. He is surrounded. Many is used three times. Whenever there's triplicates, it's to give the emphasis of what's taking place here. One of the commentators I read this week is his foes that are coming around, though, those are rising. They're like a boa constrictor, making a circle around its prey and then closing in and squeezing, oppressing. There's no escape. That's what David feels like here. And so he cries out in lament. Many are my foes. Many are rising against me. The idea here is that you can't count them. There's so many. And what's even worse is they keep expanding. You you, you can't count them all, but... The number's getting added to. It's like being somewhere and a protest begins with just a few people. And then the crowd keeps coming around and around and it's growing. And it's out of control. Police can't even control the crowd. That's what David is expressing here. His enemies are all around him. Surrounding him. Oppressing him. That's the idea of This word for foes. It's coming around, it's squeezing, it's applying pressure. But this isn't just any kind of people. It isn't David's enemies. It's not Philistines. It's not the Amorites. It's not the Edomites. The crowd is fellow Jews. The people of Israel. His subjects, if you will. And not only that, it gets worse. It's his family. 
It's his favorite son. Absalom had gone down to Hebron. He was banished by David after killing Amnon for two years. But he makes his way back through Joab. You can read the details in the narrative. And after he comes back into Jerusalem and is living there, David has nothing to do with him. He doesn't go see him. He doesn't talk to him. doesn't invite him to his house. They have no relationship. Amnon begins a cunning, deceptive plan to usurp his father. And after two more years of glad handling all the people of Israel, he goes down to Hebron. He takes David's most trusted counselor, Ahithophel. And he declares himself king in Hebron. The news comes back to David. Absalom's coming and all Israel is with him. David doesn't have time to pack a bag. The narrative says that he flees barefoot. He goes with whoever will still be on his side. And that number is few. He leaves in a hurry. He goes out of Jerusalem. He goes across the brook Kidron in the Kidron Valley, up over the mountain of Olet to the desert. Another exodus. He leaves the place where God's presence is. He flees for his life. And so as he's fleeing, he cries out to God. Many are my foes. Many are rising up against me. As if that wasn't bad enough, the worst thing is what comes next. The accusation. There is no salvation, better translated deliverance, for him by his God. In other words, David, you don't have a chance. Your days are numbered. You've got a a target on your back. It's just a matter of time. But he flees. And there's an example of how stinging these accusations can be. When David is fleeing, there's a man named Shimei, one of Saul's relatives, who's cursing him, saying, Get out! Get out! You man of blood! You worthless man! The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul. And while he's saying this, he's throwing stones at David. David felt abandoned by God. Do you ever feel that way? Abandoned by God? Do you have a wayward son or daughter who opposes you? Who speaks ill of you because of your relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you have problems with a mother or a father a sister or a brother? Do you feel the stinging accusations that they fling your way like stones? We've all had those occasions. Are you like David then? Do you lift up a lament? 
saying, Many are my adversaries. It's a gateway to God. Coming in lament. Being honest with God. Pouring out your heart to Him. All the sweeping under the rug that he's already done, trying to cover up his sinfulness from before, David gets to the point and he lays it all out on the table. In the back of his mind, he remembers 2 Samuel 12. And the consequences of sin, one will rise up in his house. So in spite of that, he goes to the Lord. He laments, he puts it all out there. But his complaint moves to confidence in verse 3. After a little phrase, Selah. That little phrase is used in poetry. It has many different meanings. Nothing defined definitively. But the idea of changing the melody or having the singers pause. Most commentators say this, that when you see Selah, It's almost like a therefore. You should pause. You should think about what has happened and where it's going. In this case, David takes this pause in his writing to reflect upon what he's doing. He takes his eyes off the focus of the situation, the crisis, the chaos. He has laid his complaint before God and now he sees God as Yahweh. The promise-keeping God. It's amazing how when we look up instead of looking inward or outward, how things can change. His confidence comes with a refocusing of his eyes to reflect upon God's promises. He tells God, O Lord, You are a shield about me my glory and the lifter of my head that idea of a shield isn't just something that you banish on your arm Ephesians chapter 6 talks about a shield of faith that takes on the darts the flaming darts of the evil one but this shield goes beyond that the idea of this word in the Hebrew is not only before me but behind me Side to side, above me and below me. In other words, you're put in a little bubble of protection by God. He recognizes that the Lord God who made him promises, one of them being that one of his descendants, he would see take his throne. That hadn't happened yet. So God puts this protection all the way around him. God, you're you're my shield. You're my glory. Not His own personal glory, but the glory of God that honors Him as a child of God. And He is the lifter of the head. When you're in these situations of life and everything's coming along around you, it's easy for us to get discouraged. To, to look at the situation and begin this downward spiral. It's the woe is me. We become discouraged. We become depressed. We may feel shame. We may feel grief. All those things. 
What David is trying to point out in this song is we lay that all before God and then we get our eyes off that situation and we get our eyes on God. God is our shield. He's the lifter of our head. When the gospel came to each and every one of us, we saw our sin for what it was before God. Guilt and shame. Put your head down. And what does God do? In Jesus Christ, He gets you by the chin and He lifts your head. I am your Savior and your God. I forgive your sin. I love you. That's the lifter of the head. And David cries out to the Lord and it says that the Lord is an answer of prayer from His holy hill. Now I mentioned earlier that He had left the presence of God. Jerusalem, that's where the tabernacle was. That's where the mercy seat was. Where God's presence was seen. What we need to see here is David leaves. He flees, but he's fleeing for the good of his people. The way the psalm ends, bless your people, he leaves it there. He knows that God is with him wherever he goes. But particularly for the people of Israel, even though they are invaded by his son Absalom, where evil has converged upon the city, God is greater and he's present in that darkness, in that evil. So David cries to the Lord. The crying is a speaking out loud. It isn't holding back. It's like the lament from earlier. He says it out loud. If you're on the street, someone wants to snatch your purse or someone begins to mug you, you cry out, Help! You don't hold back. That's what David's doing here. He's fleeing the city. He's done his complaint and now he turns his, eye, his cry towards God. And he says that God answers him. He has such confidence in the promises of God that it brings about calm, peace. The text says, I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustain me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. When we are confident in who God is, what He has promised us and how He is faithful to complete that within us. How He guarded us because He never sleeps nor He slumbers. There's a peace, there's a calm that comes about us. Paul says in Philippians 4, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. That's what David has here. A peace that passes all understanding. And he laid down and he slept. This is an uninterrupted sleep. My thoughts on this particular portion of the text brought to mind Jesus with the disciples out on the Sea of Galilee and the storm comes. They're all panicked because of the situation around them. And what is Jesus doing? He's sleeping. They say, we're perishing. They wake Him up. And what does Jesus say? Peace, 
be still. And everything was a great calm. When we remember the promises of God, who He is, what He's done on our behalf through Jesus Christ, there can be the most fabulous, abounding peace and calm in our lives in the midst of chaos. In the midst of chaos. This is why it's a morning psalm, brothers and sisters, for us to read and contemplate in the morning to start our day that way. And so comes the next Selah. Before and after. He will not be afraid, though thousands be around me. When I was a little kid, we used to make up numbers to try to exaggerate how big something was. We had a little saying when I was a kid, 20 mil thou. You'd get in, you'd get in a, a conversation with somebody and, well, I have 10 and I have 100 and I have 1,000. And then we jump to, well, I've got 20 mil thou. Okay, so when I see this and I read it, I can't help but thinking what David's thinking. He goes, I don't care how many there are. There could be 20 mil thou. I don't care. Because right now, I am in the arms of God. Just like an infant in his mother's or father's hands being rocked to sleep. He's not afraid. Well, he's said his conflict. He has stated his confidence in God. Now he is calm and now he will cry out. He will put forth prayer based on the promises that God has made. And what he is looking is an end to this conflict. An end to this consequence. An end to all things. He is longing for God to enter and defend and ultimately save. He says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. Yesterday at Presbytery, Richie brought forth, uh, I should say Friday night, he brought forth a message. He talked about two different lions. How Satan is a lion seeking to devour and how Jesus is the lion of Judah. And that is a dichotomy that is present in our lives every day. And he, he talked about that. And I, I see this portion of the text where David is asking the Lord to strike his enemies on the cheek, breaking all their teeth. And I pictured that lion. A toothless lion can't do much. Satan being the one that seeks to devour us, crouching at the door. That's what his enemy is like. That is what the evil of the world looks like. So David calls out to him and cries out to him and says, Do to my enemies this. Have you ever done that? It's like this individual lament becomes a precatory psalm. He's, he's crying against those that are against him. But isn't that what we're supposed to do? Lay things at God's feet. He's the judge. He's the vindicator. He's the one that looks out for us. 
So he asks that that be done. Now that's pretty hard for us as Christians to accept. What is that like? We can think of it in terms of being in war. One army against another. It's either kill or be killed. It's a little bit easier to pull the trigger then. I think what David's trying to tell us here, though, is not to individualize this. So much as it represents the evil that is in the world. It's hard, I know. But I think the Spirit will lead you in your prayer, your prayer of vindication when it is proper and when it is not. Other times it's not. Derek Thomas tells the story when he was three years into ministry, he was in Ireland. He had a young family in his church that were beloved, that served the Lord graciously. They had a young daughter. That daughter got on her bike one day went for a ride and never came back. The family was devastated. The church came around the family, prayed with them. The community as a whole out looking for this little girl. It took days. And when they found her, she was dead. It would be years later before the killer was finally found. He was a serial killer. He had done this many times over. Derek Thomas recalls after they had found the news and it had been delivered to the family, sitting with the mother. The mother asked the question, is it wrong for me to wish he was dead? Before Thomas could answer, The mother said, I don't really want him dead. I've been praying for him for years to come to faith in Christ. That's the hardness of this part of the psalm. The tension between it becoming precatory and becoming an opportunity for us to witness, to reach someone for Christ, to love them as Christ loves us. And that's what I want to look at for just a moment. How this psalm now points to Christ. As I was preparing this week, Gayla gave me a a book, read me a little story out of a book that is by Clarissa Mole. It's a book on grief. But, But in this particular book, there's a part at the end that talks about There's three kinds of songs in the church. There's a song of lament. There's a song of lauding. And there's a song of longing. You can look at all the hymns of the church and she brings up Isaac Watts and how he's the author of over 700 hymns. Or you can look at the Psalms and Scripture. They all fall into one of those three categories. Lament, laud, and longing. And you can look at this particular passage instead of the four couplets that I talked about in those three parts. Lament at the beginning. Lauding in the middle. Confidence in Christ. In the calm in Christ. 
and the longing at the end for God to bring to rightness all that's wrong with the world at the second coming of Christ. That's why we sing songs of lament, of laud, and longing. But there's more to this particular psalm because David is a type of Christ. David was anointed to be king. Jesus is the king of kings. David in this particular song is rejected by his family, by his people. Jesus too was rejected. He came to his own, but his own received him not. Even his family early in the Gospel of John don't even believe in him. They think he's insane. David fleed for his life across the brook Kidred, the brook Kidred, up over the Mount of Olives and into the desert. He fleed for that exodus. Jesus left Jerusalem on the night of his betrayal, but he stopped on the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane. He too prays to the Father. He too laments, let this cup pass from me but not my will, but yours. He knew what he was there to do. Jesus was betrayed. Jesus was accused. Jesus was rejected by rebellious sinners. But it was all for us. On the cross, Jesus puts to death death by His own death. On the cross, He says, forgive them for they not know, know not what they do. On the cross, He takes all of the rebellion, all the betrayal, all of our sin, all of that upon Himself. And in His crucifixion, it is all crucified. It is put to death. Therefore, our lament is heard because of Christ. The consequences of our sin are done away with. Not only the forgiveness, but the consequences of our sin. Do you hear that? Sin has consequences in this lifetime. But not in the one to come. Forgiveness of sin does not keep you from entering into communion with God for eternal life. Brokenness is always the pathway of the Gospel. Jesus' wounds will always be our source of comfort and healing. Even in our darkest pain, we can sing out a lament, a lauding, and a longing for Jesus to come. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus Christ will raise us also with Jesus and bring us into His presence so we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this momentary light affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
this song teaches you the principles of how to come before God, how to turn your focus to God, how to have peace, and then pray in longing, longing mess for Jesus' return. That's why we say, come Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time where we can open up and look at a psalm that you had written through David and how we can see the circumstances in his life apply to our lives. That we too can have confidence in you even in the worst of circumstances. That we too can have calm and peace and that we too can cry out and long for your return. Let us do so in Jesus' name. Amen.